Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome back to the Train Happy Podcast. My name is Tally Rye and this week I am joined by the brilliant Fiona Sutherland who you may have heard as Mindful Dietitian online. Fiona is a specialist in sports nutrition and eating disorder recovery and in this episode I really wanted to get into the discussion around uh, sports nutrition and if it is compatible and how it works within the context of a non-diet approach to nutrition. So we discussed whether tracking your food has a role in a non-diet approach to sports nutrition, how this works with athletes for performance, and I tried to answer as many of your questions that you sent in as possible. Well, I say I tried to answer, I should clarify. I put your questions to Fiona, so I hope that we covered um, the topic that you may have sent in. And speaking of sending stuff in, we want to hear from you on the Train Happy podcast. So if you have had a recent Train Happy moment, a moment of intuition, a little win where you feel like you're moving away from diet culture, we want to hear from you because we want to share it with the listeners and inspire this community on their own journey. So you can send your Train Happy moment into our podcast email. It is trainhappypodcast at gmail.com. And you can also send any burning questions or deep questions that you have for the podcast. And once a month, I'm going to be doing my best to answer some of those on the podcast as well. So once again, email into trainhappypodcast at gmail.com. All right, let's get into the episode and let's hear Fiona. So welcome, Fiona Sutherland, to the Train Happy podcast. Um, how are you doing, Fiona? How have you been? Um, you're based in Victoria, in Australia, and I know you've had like a pretty hard time of it compared to other parts of the country. So how's it been for you? Yeah, thanks for asking, Tally, and thank you for inviting me onto the podcast. Um, you know what? Things things have been okay. It's been really different. Um, I do think for some people it's been a lot tougher than for others uh, and certainly, you know, the impact on mental health has been not good um, but I'm very, very grateful for my years of um, practice of various, various descriptions, yoga practice, mindfulness practice and amazing support, social support. But even mm. though, you know, we haven't necessarily been able to do travelling, I've had cancelled live workshops and all those kind of things, which, although disappointing um, in the whole scheme of things, is, you know, it's, I'm trying to be pragmatic and then, um, you know, plan as much online activity as I can. So luckily, lucky we have this. Has yoga been an important part of that kind of way to just have time for yourself and kind of reconnect with yourself in the chaos? Yeah. So I come from an athlete background myself. I was a gymnast and a lot of my movement history really is, um, has been 
full of a lot of intensity, actually, you know, a lot of power sport, a lot of high intense activity, um, a lot of strength based um, activity. And, um, you know, what I have found really lovely about yoga is that now I'm very much gravitate towards the very slow, deliberate, restorative, reflective kind of yoga practice. So, um, you know, it, it, can, it can be said that a lot of, um, you know, athletes or people who still really enjoy a lot of movement and activity um, tend to gravitate towards a little bit more of the in, in, intense kind of side of yoga. Um, but for me now, my body doesn't really like that actually anymore. It's really, really calling for a lot more of the, of the slower movement, a lot more of the interoceptive movement. And I think for me at this particular time in my life, I'm incredibly, um, I don't like this word, but I, I am busy. Um, uh, you know, my life is full. There we go. My life <laughs> is full, <laughs> full of great stuff, but, but also time-wise, you know, so, um, so I'm gravitating, yeah, towards the, towards the, yes, a lot more of the um, slower movement. And I find that yoga is one of those, um, is one of those movement activities. It kind of gets a bit of a bad rap. Like there's a right way to yoga and there's a, wrong way to yoga which is strikes me as a teacher as being a little bit bizarre because that's nothing to do with the his, history of yoga and actually the movement side of yoga so asana is actually one of only eight parts of yoga so there is breath work and there's meditation and there's contemplation and there's all different what we would call branches um or limbs actually is the is the proper word limbs of yoga and asana or the movement side of things is just one limb it's just that hello diet culture hello western whitewashed philosophy <laughs> um they've come along and just taken the movement and turned it into um what we primarily and dominantly see today and that is you know slender white young um, toned thin people doing yoga um, and that's been the, the kind of the new form of yoga but for me I don't subscribe to that idea um, I don't teach to that I teach to who's in the room um, I prefer to participate in yoga that suits me and the kind of yoga that suits me um, and that's what I teach as well you know very much that um, having that space where we can just be with ourselves um, and all of the discomfort that that brings, actually, it's not like this is always a happy place to be, <laughs> um, you know, yeah. in my mind, in my body, you know, of course, um, but that, uh, you know, taking that time to just be with our own selves is pretty important, I think, as a human. I love that you're speaking about yoga because you are a yoga teacher, but obviously you're known as mindful dietitian and I'm really interested how your work in dietetics and the yoga kind of combine um, and probably overlap. Um, and I didn't know your sporting background, so it's really interesting to hear that you had that past as a gymnast as well. So maybe you could just give us a, you know, like a little um, overview of how you got into dietetics, how you became mindful dietitian, and, and how the mindfulness incorporates into what you're doing now. Yeah, sure. So I'll keep this like a, a snapshot, like a, a bit of a, a brief trajectory through. So because of gymnastics, I spent a lot of time in the physiotherapist's office. My poor parents spent a fortune. And um, 
as a result of, you know, being really inquisitive about the human body, really, which has led, you know, which has, you know, funneled right through until until this day, um, I did want to be a physiotherapist. Um, it, it, it was interesting because at the la kind of at the last minute, my plans were thwarted somewhat, and I ended up doing a science degree, just a Bachelor of Science at Melbourne University, and then from there you usually would specialise in some kind of health professional psychology or go along some kind of path from a, from a Bachelor of Science. And so I made a good friend at university and her parents were both dietitians and I'd never thought about dietetics. Uh, I don't have a lived experience of an eating disorder myself, um, but I have always enjoyed food. So there was that, right? <laughs> um, I, you know, I really hadn't, I'd, I'd had probably the average tumultuous nature of a relationship with food and eating and my body, um, but, but nothing that kind of caused a disruption, you know, to my life in the way that the diet culture kind of pushes us in that direction. Um, so, you know, coming into university, I was like, oh, this sounds like a good career, all right, whatever. And then I actually ended up in the UK for a couple of years working clinically. Yeah, I worked, um, where's my first? My first uh, post, clinical post, was at um, down in Bromley, actually, in Bromley, working the general medical wards. And then I ended up in at rugby, a rugby hospital, rugby NHS, uh, for about six months. And I worked up in Derby for a bit, um, in, back in Warwick, um, you know, and did tons of travelling and then kind of came home. And that was in the early 2000s. And then... Um, you know, I, I, I was almost going to leave the profession because I really didn't like it. I didn't like clinical work. I didn't, I just didn't, I, I definitely felt like I didn't fit in. So that has formed part of the trajectory I find myself on now, you know, this sense of not fitting into to what a quote unquote dietitian does or says or teaches or uh, you know whatever um at the same time i i do want to be clear that i um i do have a lot of body privileges i'm white i'm smaller bodied i'm able-bodied um you know I'm, I'm approaching middle age so i don't know what you call that but um age privilege i guess just on the south side of age privilege i suppose but there's a lot of things that um, culturally you know make my life an easy easier you know make this world an easier place for me to navigate through no nothing I've done like no nothing I've deliberately done it's just cards that have folded in my in my favor that have made my life easier and um uh, so I ended up working in a weight loss clinic I know horror <laughs> horror horror right um but what happened there was that I heard uh, lots and lots and lots of stories of people related related pain um and I was really confused I thought mm, hang on a second what I, it's the first time I'd really spent a lot of time with uh, with other humans and you know from there I also was working um I also started, started working very high performance elite sport I got a completely lucky break with a very very high performing organization um you know just right place right time right connections that's all and um and then I was working with these very high performance athletes and I was working at the weight loss clinic. And then I also got my first job in eating disorders. And I remember it dawned on me, I was like, oh my goodness, like I'm hearing a lot of the same things from these very high performance athletes. 
from people who were, um, you know, really driving for weight loss or who were actively seeking out weight loss services and the people struggling with clinical eating disorders. And I thought to myself, well, there's something going on here. Like it's, there's commonalities here that I'm seeing. If I kind of close my eyes, I'm hearing very much the same stuff. So I think I, you know, I, I picked up what was being, what the universe kind of put down for me really and started searching for what this was. And now, now we can call it diet culture. Um, you know, now we can um, call it what it is. And that is, you know, um, people's, people's um, body and food related uh, challenges and difficulties that were no fault of their own, um, but that are common amongst different humans and are impact, impacted, you know, so many different ways so from there I rapidly rapidly left the weight loss clinic because I realized pretty early on after only a number of months that this was not the place for me I knew there was something very wrong with me being there even back then you know 15 or more years ago I just got this sense I was like this is not the place for me I got that sense that I was doing harm um and uh, but I stuck with elite sport to this day. I, st I stick with high performance sport. Um, and I've also stuck with eating disorders. Um, so for, you know, 12 or 13 years, I worked in, you know, clinical eating disorders with people who varied in their presentation in terms of age and gender and um, ethnicity and, and diagnosis and body size and all different kinds of people. Um, but in more recent years, I've really specialised in people um, who live in larger bodies, people who might self-identify as fat, uh, using that word as a neutral descriptor of, uh, of appearance and how, how somebody wants to self-identify. Um, and, uh, you know, doing a lot of education and training of health professionals. It's a very long answer, Tommy. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's great. It's so interesting. And I think it is really interesting how... I don't know, like you said, there are those commonalities between high performing athletes and people with eating disorders. Um, and I know that, I think it was last year now, um, it's Mary Kane, the athlete, she's a, I think a, a, like a middle distance to long distance runner in the US. And she wrote a piece for the New York Times saying like, I was the fastest girl in America until I joined Nike, which is a New York Times um, op-ed. So I really recommend people going to read that because it's eye-opening at how in elite sports, these eating disorder behaviors are encouraged to reach high performance. So I would just be, you know, I think it's really important that we highlight that and, you know, discuss the pitfalls in those realms because I think often we put professional athletes on such a pedestal of you know achieving such greatness doing amazing things and and then that trickles down into you know your favorite gold medalist giving nutrition doing their what I eat and day in a magazine or you know or start doing brand deals with certain products they endorse and I think it's really interesting about you know not to say these people are not trustworthy but to 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 how do we kind of become more aware, you know, create awareness mm. around this. So yes, I don't know if that was a question, but <laughs> maybe it was a good statement if it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I think one thing that can be said, not that you're insinuating this, not at all, is that, you know, um, 
we think we can think about high performance sport and, and and eating disorders as like a Venn diagram. So there is overlap there, but it can't be said that all high performance mm. athletes have eating disorders. Nor can it be said that everyone with an eating disorder has trouble with exercise or or finds exercise a challenge. Some people manage exercise and movement just fine, um, and others do. They find they find kind of finding that middle ground a, a bit tough actually. Um, so I think my you know, my, my involvement in high-performance sport, what it has shown me is the unique way, actually, that disordered eating as a collection of behaviours on the spectrum of what we would say um, is uh, normative, I guess, or normalised or um, not disordered. I, I really don't like the word normal, but not disordered. Or something that is life promoting, nourishing, et cetera, et cetera. So on the spectrum from that, right through to deeply problematic, really interrupts our life, really impacts on our mental health and our physical health and you know just life in general, really. Um, but that what happens is that I, I, I call sports culture like it's a culture within a culture. So a lot of athletes um, not only uh, are um, impacted by our wider, broader culture of um, pressures to, towards leanness and away from fatness, for example. But then that's also overlaid by the additional pressures that often come from being an athlete in particular sports. So, for example, we, we, you know, uh, people might be participating in sports that emphasise leanness or emphasise quote-unquote lightness and maybe it's um, emphasized with very little evidence mind you that you know I will go quicker if I'm if I'm lighter or I'll go quicker if I'm leaner or I'll be stronger if I'm heavier or I'll um, get better scores if this or I'll look better if that um, or I'll be picked for a team if I am able to achieve a certain body composition or a certain weight or, or so forth and so I think there's this real um there is this real Venn diagram kind of overlap between athlete culture and, and broader culture. And, and what happens is that in what I have observed over many years is that disordered eating is kind of allowed because we kind of can't tell. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's seen as, oh, that's what athletes do. That's what dedicated athletes do. That's what committed athletes do. And I think to myself, hang on a second, first of all, human, like first of all, human, and then second athlete, I get it. Like I get it. I'm not going to diss, diss any athletes naming of themselves. That's fine. But first of all, human, we've all grown up in this culture. We've all been impacted and influenced by the way bodies are regarded in this culture. We can't escape it and we shouldn't ignore that, you know, the, the impact on each of us as well as collectively as well. But what, the, what research does point to is that actually sports participation across the board is actually protective of eating disorders. However, but, and, I don't know which word to use, so I'll say, and, that's the correct word. And there are specific sports or groups of sports which actually do confer higher risk. So those sports are um, sports that, that separate people into weight categories, so things like martial arts or boxing or, or rowing, for example. And then another category is what we name as aesthetic sports, so things like ballet, gymnastics, diving, synchronized, synchronized swimming, figure skating, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so um, the third kind of group 
is sports that emphasize leanness as having a, as having a performance advantage. Um, and what happens is that in these particular subgroups of sports, it seems as though the way that um, the way that bodies are regarded or the way that um, that athletes and participants are coached, not uh, by coach, I don't, don't necessarily mean it's the coach's fault. I just mean the way that they're raised, I guess, in these sporting cultures um, that, you know, there, there is a particular way that, uh, you know, of, of eating and um, being around food and body image and behaviours that are seen as, oh, well, that's just what athletes do. And I think we need to stop doing that. And I think we need to really call it out because what happens is people get very sick because early warning signs are missed because it's um, seen as, oh, that's just what a ballet dancer does. Oh, ballet dancers don't eat much. They only eat vegetables and all this, frankly, bullshit stuff. It's not only, it's untrue, um, but it's, it, it, there's no evidence for it. It's not evidence-based. So anybody who says that is not scientist I mean not that people in ballet should be scientists but you know what I mean <laughs> you know what I mean um but that you know if we're truly looking after someone's health and well-being and we're really looking for what we call optimal performance then we need to come back to what is going to actually support that individual to be able to uh you know move forward and actually perform at their best and I'll tell you this a restriction is not going to lead to improved performance particularly in the long term, it might temporarily for some people because of the physiological changes that come along with restriction, but I haven't seen it. Like in all my years, I haven't seen it. What I have seen is people getting very sick and them having to leave their sport. And that is heartbreaking, heartbreaking because they just, they thought they were doing it for the right reasons, but it's a bit of a disaster. Yeah. So calling out this stuff is extremely important. And I think going back to Mary Kane's article, she's being this elite runner, you know, had such high hopes for being um, at the top of her game. Um, she had to leave her sport because she highlighted um, reds, which I think has been spoken about more often. And I want to get this right. Um, it's relative energy deficient in sport. Um, I think that's what the, the acronym stands for. Um, and I wondered if you could maybe just explain what that means, because this is certainly a term I've seen more recently um, that don't have as good understanding about it. Sure. So red, it's either called reds or red S or relative energy deficiency in sport. And so um, I just want to take us back to a little bit of history of this. So for over, over 20 years, probably closer to 25 years, um, what we've known is that there is a link between energy insufficiency, in other words, an imbalance of the energy in and energy out um, and hormone function and bone health. So, so we've known that this particular triad has existed for quite a long time. And some of the, um, some of the work of Roberta Sherman and her colleagues in the US really um, helped this come to light in what, what is still called the female athlete triad. Um, but um, more recent work and research has expanded the female athlete triad. And now what we understand is that... Um, it's it, it's not that the triad has been renamed it's almost been broadened so what we understand is that it's not just um hormones and bones that are affected by low by energy what's called energy insufficiency 
Um, but that also things like metabolic function, um, psychological state, Im immune function, cardiovascular function, all different um, physiological systems in the body are quite significantly affected when, and it's not necessarily that we're not eating enough. Sometimes it's that we're um, exercising or moving too much. It can be a combination of both. It can be one um, or the other or both. It's, I see it most commonly being both. But um, but then it is so so reds can often intersect with an eating disorder presentation, but not always. So I'll give you an example. So I might be working with a um, uh, say a, a uh, thirteen year old, let's just say a thirteen year old young female dancer, and they go from one level, and they're maybe training for um, 18 hours a week or something, and they go up to the next level within, you know, a number of months. And then they are training all of a sudden 24 hours a week, um, but actually they haven't increased their dietary intake. And all of a sudden they notice their periods are off, they're feeling tired, um, their, their gastrointestinal function, their gut is a bit off, they're just not feeling great. And so what's the first thing we think of? gluten i'm gonna cut out i mean being facetious obviously but it's like <laughs> what am i eating that's making me feel yucky um i'm I should maybe it's dairy maybe it's gluten maybe it's wheat maybe it's this maybe it's that and so what happens for a lot of people when we start getting these symptoms is it's what am i eating and i can't tell you the hundreds of people that have said you're not eating enough and we need to start there like we actually need to start there. People are like shocked. Honestly, they're shocked. It's like, what do you mean I'm not eating enough? I was, I'm in the same, you know, but, but I'm like, no, but your training's increased and you're having less time to eat, not only because your training's increased, but because there's, you know, there's, there's so many different factors here, but that the body is so sensitive that actually even just small changes in energy intake or small changes in energy output can really affect our system in quite dramatic ways. And so our body desperately tries to give us these symptoms. Maybe it's, it's fatigue or maybe it's, um, you know, um, gut symptoms um, or maybe, you know, our skin goes a bit funny or, um, yeah, maybe it's, it's our, our cycles become really long or maybe for a guy, you know, libido drops off or um, mood drops off. We're beginning to feel maybe anxious or, or a bit of a low mood. Um, because what can happen with red S, I call it red S, is um, that sometimes our weight doesn't change. So people are like, I can't be not eating enough because my weight hasn't dropped. And it's actually really, really common that we're not eating enough, but our weight hasn't dropped. And even sometimes our weight goes up because of the, the way that our metabolic systems kick into gear to try to say, save us, essentially. It's like, I'm trying to save you. And meantime, we're like, oh, stupid body, blah, 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 you know. And, and our body's like, I'm trying to save your love. I'm trying to preserve you. So there's these, gets really complicated, actually. Um, but the primary driver of Red S is what we call energy insufficiency. So the, the way that we um, tackle and address Red S is through um, getting energy balance. Um, sounds simple, not so simple, um, because it is really common that people don't want to eat more. They're quite fearful. Um, they fear weight gain um, because, of course, weight gain has been this, you know, really demonised um, thing that, like, like, the worst thing that a body can do. And, you know, you and I both know, Tally, that it's it's far from the worst thing that a body that a body can do and actually it's a really it's a really important mechanism 
you know, um, and certainly, you know, rooted in all these diet culture structures that tell us that you know, we should have a certain body and we should be doing all these things, we should be spending our money. Um, you know, so with especially high performance athletes, I find that's a tricky conversation. But um, you know, it, it's a it's a really important one to have and important to have really honestly. So, yeah, that's a little a little trip through Red S. I think it's so interesting because a lot, you know, we'll get into questions from the listeners later on because I did ask their input for today's episode. But one thing that did come up a couple of times was um, how to get a regular period, how to, um, you know, eat enough to gain the period back and essentially stop amenorrhea. Um, So I would, yeah, maybe we could just talk about um, that amenorrhea and whether that is a kind of a red flag for red or red S um, or, you know, how to tackle it. And what I'm interested in now is maybe we can just add on to that is how do we go about, which I think is the crux of this episode is how do we go about working towards, you know, improving and, um, you know, getting more energy in our bodies, making sure we are eating enough without, tracking or is there an element of meal plans or tracking um how does it work as a as a sports dietitian to kind of restore these things yes okay so i'll try and remember those two that two-part question um but if i need reminding then just just jump in the room i'm really great at giving really like my brain has lots of thoughts and i'm really good at dumping them on people so (laughs) feel free to ask i really don't it's fine it's so fine okay so the first question is about regaining periods um this is something that a lot of people are really concerned about and and not just women who identify as cisgender either you know um anybody with a uterus can have a period so just reminding you know our our audiences that, um, you know, trans men, um, non-binary folks, um, there are people who who have periods that um, do, don't um, name themselves as, as women or, or females. So um, with that in mind, um, the first resource that I would really point people to is the work of Dr. Nicola Rinaldi. So Nicola wrote this really amazing book a number of years ago now called No Period, Now What? And what she has done so well is she's really taken this amazing deep dive into research and has pulled together so much information and has also done her own research as well and has tracked women over time or has tracked people over time Um to be able to identify, you know, what are the factors that actually help people get their period back. And one of the things that I find really interesting about menstrual cycles and and endocrine function and hormones is that a lot of people think to themselves, oh, what's what's the big deal? Like if I skip my period or all athletes, you know, isn't that just normal for an athlete or normal for a dancer or normal for, you know, um, whoever? Um, and we need, again, we need to really talk about that because no, it's, it's not. It, is, is it normalised? Absolutely. Do we need to start getting real and clear about the impacts of um, hormone dysregulation? Yes, we do, because the impacts of it in terms of cardiovascular function, in terms of gut function, um, mood, let alone fertility. So a lot of people say, no, oh, well, I'm 21. I don't want to have a kid anytime soon. I'm right. No worries. Mm-hmm. But they're really surprised to hear all the other ways in which hormones and the endocrine system really regulates so many different um, or works in concert with so many different systems in the body. And so getting a period is not just about um, conceiving or about pregnancy or fertility. It's actually 
about lots of other systems in the body as well. And people are kind of surprised to hear about that. So um, I would point people firmly in the direction of Nicola Rinaldi's if, um, what does it say? No period, now wash, that's it. Um, it's just packed full of really practical information as well. So in the, in the first chapters, you can totally nerd out and go through all the research with Nicola. She kind of takes you on this path. And then she introduces you to, you know, all the kind of practical side of things, um, which almost inevitably includes eating more. <laughs> so um, it also does include really stepping back on a particularly the high intensity exercise. Um, Nicola does not encourage people just to cease all exercise um, for, for forever and a day. But, um, you know, things like energy availability needs to be treated really cautiously and also really compassionately too. Uh, because people can be really shocked at actually how much they need to eat in order to regain their cycles. Sometimes it's a lot more than we think. Yeah, a, a lot more, thousands and thousands of, of calories, just to kind of put a number on it. Um, so we're not talking about 1,200, we're not talking about 15, we're not even talking about 18 or 2,000, we're often talking about a lot more than that. People are like, what? I don't think I've ever eaten that in my life. And the truth is it's, it's, it's way north of, 2000 calories a day. So just to give people a bit of an idea. Um, and that, you know, what that means is we have to make uh, mental adjustments to what that means. Um, we also often have to make kind of physical adjustments. Um, often people's body does change. Um, sometimes it, 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 it doesn't so much um but but most often it does because that's where our body's probably meant to be you know so many uh, women in particular but men also um people of all genders are kind of um quite weight suppressed so what that means is that we're really just not meeting our energy needs many um, very sufficiently so if we experience an injury or an illness often that can mean that our body's like ripper yay i can actually get all the energy that i need now and that can come with body changes which can be um, scary for people and I have a lot of compassion for that um you know there's a part of me that's like well you know this is what happens and then there's the other part of me that's like oof geez that's you know any kind of changes that feel um you know confronting to us is um you know need to be met with compassion and a great deal of courage as well um so part two part two part two <laughs> yes please how do we tackle this let's remind everyone how do we tackle this then how do we go about eat, eating enough, eating sufficiently enough? Um, is there a place for tracking that? Is there, is, do we, can we do that without falling into the traps of diet culture that we speak about so much on this podcast? Yeah. Look, another great question there, Tally. And to be honest, you know, um, if you asked me five years ago, I would have been like, eh, no, 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 we should be tracking, blah, 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 blah. And you know what? I think, I don't know whether it's, um, Kind of what it is i think probably i'm just becoming a little bit more open-minded maybe i don't know in some ways but i think uh, i do think there's no black and white answer i think for some people getting an idea of where they're going particularly under is actually really really helpful it's like oh oh i didn't realize that i wasn't eating enough maybe at that particular time of day or you know when we're looking broadly at a day being able to look through our day and through our days intake and then kind of assess the energy that we're also using in the day it can actually be really great um kind of um educatively for us um uh but what i would say is that if tracking is triggering if it brings back 
um, memories or trauma of past dieting or an eating disorder experience or tracking in the past even, and that was really deeply unpleasant, just brings up unpleasantness for you, then don't do it. Then don't do it. You know, is it possible to track without it having negative effects? Yes, it is. A lot of people do do that. And those people usually write books and tell everybody else that they should be tracking, right? Um, so I don't agree with that. I do not agree that just because some people can track and it seemingly, seemingly has little impact on them psychologically or physically, is, this is not a blanket statement. It's also, just to reiterate, not the case that everybody who tracks is going to go down the plug hole of, of, of diet culture and disordered eating. That's not the case either. So I think a bit of self-awareness needs to be brought into this. It's like, hmm, with my particular history with my particular experiences of food and eating previous previous dieting maybe an eating disorder mood you know ha have i had depression and anxiety and do i still have depression and anxiety you know how might this affect me am i willing to let it go if i do experiment with it it's not working for me in any way shape or form that those are the questions we need to ask ourselves um, and not feel compelled that tracking is something we have to do, nor should we feel compelled that it is absolutely not something we can do. Um, I have worked with athletes who are, see, this is the thing with working with a dietitian, right, it's particularly a non-diet dietitian, is we would step you through the process. So I have worked with, um, with athletes who wanted to regain their period and after a really thorough assessment and after lots of conversation and, and, um, and preparation, which often takes months, we have entered into that tracking process. Um, it's actually been really, really useful. And then we've been able to gradually, gradually, gradually let it go. So tracking has served its purpose. It has been a wonderful education tool. It's been a wonderful foundational thing. It's been a wonderful... Um, uh, it's been a wonderful uh, tool, I guess, to provide a solid foundation for energy sufficiency. But it's not something that we need to do forever. A, a month or two, that's it. And then we've gradually, gradually, gradually let it go. And so the impact has not been that um, of, you know, becoming over-focused or maybe obsessed or, you know, just really, um, it really screwing around with your mind, but has been a, a tool, one tool. And for other people, very quickly, they're like, mm -mm not for me, not for me. And so we've just let it go. We're just like, yeah, we've learned this is not for me. So let's just let it go. We don't need to hang on to something that's not for us. Do you um, think, so if I can ask a few more specifics about tracking, um, do you, are you using something like a MyFitnessPal um, thing where you're specifically tracking macros, weighing out the food, all that stuff, or is there a way to track maybe a bit more less specifically if that makes sense so whether it's like keeping a little note of things and just running it past the dietitian and just saying like here's what i have i you know i'm not even writing specific calories down but you know you can kind of get a sense that like if i had a chicken breast and i had some potatoes and whatever on my plate that you can kind of get an idea and is there a way of doing that that feels a bit less um risky and number focused for those of us you know, myself included, who, um, yes, very, very quickly, it really surprises me actually how quickly it was to really start to latch onto those numbers. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so that's, that is actually a really, really good follow-up question because I, I, I wasn't specific about that. So I appreciate you, um, you know, asking for a bit more information there. So I would, I can't think of a particular example where I would use specific macros, grams, calories, kilojoules, I just can't think of one. I don't think I ever have, to be honest. Am I doing a few mental calculations in my head as a dietitian with a master's degree? Yeah, I am. Yep. Because what my client is um, asking of me is, is uh, um, you know, wh where's the point? Like, where's the point? Um, and so what we're doing is we're, we're using kind of our knowledge. Um, well, I'm kind of trying to integrate my nutrition knowledge and help somebody, you know, learn more about their bodies. But we're also using some interceptive awareness as well. So we are using some body-led eating. We're not totally relying on nutrition content and we're not totally relying on body-led eating because sometimes um, we actually need to eat more than is comfortable in order to, for example, get our period back or in order to head in the direction of eating disorder recovery. It's not always going to be physically comfortable. And um, there are times in people's lives where I would say that body-led eating is is not a great idea because it's, it's not going to ultimately help us get where we want to go. Um, but, you know, I... I, I, I don't think that, you know, the, the tracking of minute of our eating, like breaking things right down. Uh, yeah, no, I'm not into that at all. I, what I do, just to give people an example, is we use a very flexible spreadsheet that is designed by my client. So I say to them, you know, we could put these headings in there. Like, what do, what do you want to do? So for some people, um, like to create awareness of their eating habits, one thing they say is, oh, yeah, it'll be really interesting to kind of reflect on, like, where am I eating and, and how am I eating? Am I, am I standing up in the kitchen or am I sitting down at the dining table or am I sitting down on the couch in front of the TV? For some people, they do that and then they rate their hunger and fullness and then that's it. That's it, literally it. They don't even track food. You know, and so it depends on what your goal is. Um, if we're tracking food, some people write BF for breakfast, some people write L for lunch or S for snack, and some people actually write exactly what they eat in, in, in little details. And so part of working with tracking is not just the tracking structure and, and kind of device itself, but working with a non-diet dietitian or a non-diet sports dietitian, if you're an athlete, the reason why I believe it's really critical is because the conversations that we have will bring though that paper to life. Um, it will, because when you are able to thread together your experiences and be able to develop more insight into where needs tweaking in order to meet my needs a little bit more sufficiently or, um, you know, where we're finding ourselves getting tripped up maybe by food rules or maybe, um, you know, um, no, poor, poor body image kind of moments or, or high levels of self-criticism or body criticism or, or body shame, for example, you know, um, kind of cross-checking or overlaying your monitoring, as we would call it, monitoring with actual life experiences means that it goes from like a one-dimensional thing on a paper to actually, um, 
the two and three dimensional as you put it into the context of someone's life. We actually really can't tell much about somebody by their tracking sheets and by their monitoring sheets. Um, but once I start having conversations with people, it really comes to life because then I can talk to them about it, you know? And it sounds like there's a lot of, um, through the tracking process, that there is a lot of um, trust building with that client that they are, it's not about you being the expert of their body and going, you need to eat this, 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 follow my strict meal plan, you know, make sure you're eating X, Y, Z. And actually it's very much, uh, we're gonna collaborate and do this together. I'm just gonna kind of give you kind of the, the framework. And, you know, we talk about intuitive eating a lot on this podcast and, you know, with that intuitive eating, it's like giving you the tools and the knowledge and, you know, giving you the individual, the kind of power over your body and the autonomy of your body. But, you know, you just need a bit of help making certain decisions around food, a bit of help and encouragement um, and guidance in just like heading in the right direction. So I think that I, I took that away from what you were saying. Would you agree? Yes. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and so it, it doesn't always have to be, for example, a non-diet dietitian. It could be um, it could be a health coach or it could be, your, you know, somebody who is your trainer, for example. Um, but I do think it's really important that you're working and having conversations with people who are aligned, um, you know, because it, oh, not often, well, okay, I think it is often, that sometimes people find themselves in conversations which actually are more aligned with diet culture uh, than, you know, kind of, um, you know, um, the opposite of diet culture, which would be uh, healing, you know, healing our relationships with food and eating and, and our bodies. So I think finding the right person to have those important and very courageous conversations mm. with is really important. The, the the qualification they have isn't always the most important thing, even though it feels like I should kind of be saying that, but I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think that I've met a ton of dietitians. I'm just going to dump on my own profession now <laughs> who are really diet culture-y. Ugh, I hate to say it. Like they are exactly the, what you described before, you know, do this, eat that, da, 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 da. I mean, there's plenty of them out there. Um, and there's also, um, th th they're in every profession, right? So I think finding a person who can help you stay aligned with your values, with your goals, and how you want to establish a relationship with food and eating in your body, I think that's the most important thing. So would your recommend recommendation be for those people listening who are like, yeah, I lost my period or... I have, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling my right. And, you know, there's certain things lacking. Maybe um, red S is something I can relate to, or maybe just in general, I feel like, you know, I need to have more confidence to eat more and, and understanding to do that. Do you recommend that they seek out a non-diet dietitian or a nutritionist to help them with that tracking process? Or do you think that they could even try and attempt to do that on their own? having listened to this podcast and said like, it doesn't need to be this, it doesn't need to be on an app. It can be very informal, loose tracking just to get a sense of what's going on for me. Like, do you think this always needs supervision or can people do it on their own a bit? And do you think that also depends on the history of a person's relationship with food? Yeah, it very much depends on the individual person and their relationship to food and really if we're being really realistic about it what it really depends on is people's financial situation too mm. because 
you know, being having the privilege to be able to engage in um, professional healthcare services can be really costly. And it's not because we um, charge a lot in healthcare. I mean, I'm never going to retire a millionaire, um, but that I'm just really aware that doing ongoing work with people can incur quite a quite a financial cost. Mm. Um, so ultimately, I mean, if I was to offer, if I was to say to somebody who did have um, uh, the financial wherewithal, then I would say absolutely, you know, seeking out a non-diet dietitian or a non-diet nutritionist would absolutely be your first port of call because um, having those conversations, which can bring your experience to life and also to just feel feel held and supported in a, in a relationship with somebody who really wants to understand you and really wants to help you move in the direction that you want to move into. Um, the work is not always easy. Sometimes we're like, oh, I, I want to have a better relationship with food, but oh, I feel terrible about my body. I actually, I want to lose weight, but now I'm scared to tell my non-diet dietitian because apparently you're not meant to say that. But I encourage anybody listening, just bring your truth, you know, bring, bring your truth with you because we are not going to say, um, oh, no, you're not allowed to do that or that's not what I do. We're going to have that conversation with you. you know, are we going to be the ones that hand you the restrictive diet plan? No, <laughs> that's where our line is. Um, but if you don't have the financial wherewithal, um, which a lot of people actually don't, um, you know, I, I do wish these services were low cost or, or at no cost for everybody, um, is that, yeah, give it a go. Like paper and paper and pen if you want to go old school and maybe experiment with some different headings. So maybe you want to experiment with, um, you know, where you are, um, you know, so, so if you were to think about it being an Excel spreadsheet, what you might do is some headings across the top and then break it down into sections from, um, you know, from kind of the bottom or north to south. So you might think about, you know, um, time of day, where you are, what you ate, if you want to, just experiment with that. Just, just take it gently with yourself. And then you might want to track how hungry you were from one to 10. You might before the meal or snack, then you might want to track how full you were afterwards from one to 10. And then you might want to leave a big section for notes or reflections or mood or whatever. You know, th those are just some broad ideas. The, you know, those, that's not a rule. That's just a, you know, an idea of the kind of things that you can do. Um, with also the caveat, as I said before, if you're feeling terrible or it's kind of taking you down the plug hole, then it's really important that you're able to say, this is not working for me. Like, this is not for me. Um, and that you really are compassionate and gentle with yourself through that process. So, yeah, by all means, you know, giving it a go and developing our, our awareness can be a really great first step. Awesome, because I, I feel like that feels quite encouraging for people because I think the I, I think one of the common questions that I had from um, listeners was kind of like, can these two things coexist? Like, um, and I think it's really interesting to hear like an alternative way to track because I think it's so black and white what the kind of general information we're given, I think especially when you're looking at nutrition online, especially when you're looking at from a fitness perspective, because the gym bros, you know, and the fitness industry at large loves a macro, loves a calorie, um, and pushes that uh, narrative and that approach um, really firmly. So you feel like that, to me, if I'm honest, I kind of felt like maybe that was the only option, like it was either calories or nothing. And is there a middle ground that can work in that non-diet approach, especially for those who are wanting to have a more peaceful relationship with food? Now, I want to talk 
a bit about the sports performance element because um, I think with, so say we're talking in a professional athlete um, and we're looking to, I love tennis, so I'm going to put this in the context of tennis because that's my favourite sport. Um, say they're looking to win the Australian Open and, you know, they have, uh, well, they have a very long season, but you have your like training block leading up to the Australian Open. It's like the first big tournament of the year. You are like, as an athlete, this is going to be my year, my tournament, and I know I need to nutritionally support that. How would you, with a non-diet approach, work with your athlete to make sure that their performance is peaking at a certain time? And um, is there a way of like doing that in a non-diet approach? I'm going to ask that question first. I have a second question related to this, but let's go there first. <laughs> yeah, pause. Um, <laughs> I'm pausing myself because pause. like I said, too many thoughts. Okay. So yes, it's absolutely possible. So remember that a non-diet approach is not a eat whatever, whenever, although there's an element of that that is true. Like, you know, when, when we are coming from a, a place of self-respect and we're coming from a place of self-care and self-awareness, then we actually can eat whatever we want because what we want, we are able to build discernment around that. It's not just a, yeah, fuck it, you know, type of situation. It's more like I'm able to choose and able to choose from a place of feeling like that's okay and I accept my choice and sometimes I'll overeat and sometimes I'll undereat and sometimes I'll underfuel, for example. But, you know, to go back to your, to go back to your question, um, you know, if I was working with somebody who was wanting to win the Australian Open, I mean, that would be great, by the way. <laughs> At least I'd get free tickets. That would be awesome. Um, but, uh, you know, for example, tennis players need truckload of energy like an absolute truckload of energy so I'd be looking at things like where are they playing so Australian Open in January can get up to 40 degrees mm. on centre court like higher than that 42 43 degrees on centre court you know what my priority is there hydration that is my priority um yes absolutely in terms of you know um nutritional profile i mean as a sports dietitian i would be looking at that for somebody at competing at that level i would be absolutely looking at um carbohydrate and protein and fat kind of profile in the days leading up i, I would be but the number one thing i'd be looking at for the australian open is hydration so um you know i'd be looking at um you know the, the kind of work they have they've done or testing they've done around hydration status um i'd be thinking about definitely about sports drinks i'd be thinking about salt i'd be thinking yeah. about all kinds of things so a non-diet approach and a diet approach really i guess in this way they can be similar in lots of ways is that we're looking for what can help somebody perform at their best so if we were to think about a different sport so let's just say we were thinking because tennis is in a way you've let me off the hook a little bit here, Tally, because we're just like eat lots, hydrate really well, be super smart. You know, whereas if we're thinking about say a sport like lightweight rowing, for example, where the crew all have to be under a certain weight. Yeah. That's you know, a better um, example. That is a better example. Yeah, for example, <laughs> you know, or, or uh, judo or, you know, a martial art where you have to weigh in on that. Um, 
that this can be very fraught actually and is it and is a different kind of um, a different way of working because um, at the end of the day if you don't get underneath that number you don't compete you don't compete that's it you know and that, and that and could be your income done you know that's done. that's the pressure that's put on it like that's yeah. you doing your job or not so there's a lot yeah. more pressure than you know yeah yeah yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, so with, for example, weight-related sports or um, aesthetic sports or you know, um, leanness-oriented sports or something. I mean, weight is probably the peak of the riskiness, I guess. I think, anyway, in my experience, um, because people actually will do whatever it takes to get that to get their body under that number, and that often comes with it. Comes with it a, a hell of a lot of risk so in terms of you know i'm not going to name particular behaviors i don't think that's wise or smart but um people could do go to great lengths to, to do things to and with their body to help them kind of get below that number so whilst at the same time as you rightly point out it's really understandable because it can be somebody's career it can somebody be somebody's um uh, you know um team selection it can be an income it can be all kinds of things but um, you know, unless we're that we're be able to, we're going to be able to navigate that the, the cyclical nature of that really smartly, then people can find themselves in a real pickle actually, um, because they end up like under eating, under eating, under eating, and then over eating, over eating, over eating, and then the cycle just goes backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. And actually, is quite disordered really. Um, you know, kind of that cycle of overeating and under eating is you know, I've worked with a lot of athletes who's like, well, that's what the whole team does. And I'm like, well, it doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it okay. It certainly doesn't make it healthy. And certainly doesn't mean that it's going to optimize performance because if it actually is performance that we're looking at, we desperately need to change the sporting culture, which says that the body should look like and be like this at any cost. I mean, that is so problematic. It's like humans are just trash to be just thrown away. And if you can't make it, oh, well, there's five more where that came from. I mean, so disrespectful and really harmful. And for and athletes know that. They know that if they don't reach a certain weight or body fat percentage or this, that or the other, they can be dropped. And I mean, I don't know. I'm getting all social justice oriented on you now. But you know how this is. I do, that makes me very upset and angry because it treats, it treats athletes like trash, and nobody deserves that. So, what was the second part of that question? So, do you think? Um, so, yeah, with that specific example of having to meet a weight criteria, having to meet a that weight, do you think there is a non-diet way to do it, or do you think that? Um, is there a way to lessen the risk but will, do you think there will always be a risk there like is there a way to to do this under guidance rather than letting an athlete do whatever they you know whatever they think and go to such extremes is there a, a safer way to have um yeah to help guide them through that process yeah so um i will stand by the assertion that people don't like actually. So I just want to kind of um, lead with this. People don't like it when I say, I believe there is no risk-free way to, um, for athletes to engage in any dietary manipulation or body composition manipulation. 
I believe there are always risks for every single person. Does that mean that if you start getting your skin folds tracked, for example, that you're going to get an eating disorder? No, it doesn't. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, and I really, really like how you asked this question because you actually didn't use the words safe. You said safer and you mm. said lessen the risk rather than risk-free. Whereas what I notice a lot in kind of athletes and sports settings is they're talking about risk-free or they're talking about safe this and safe that. And I think what we need to be really clear about, and again, people don't like it when I say it, it's like, oh no, everything comes with risk. Like it's going to come with risk. We need to manage that risk. So I'll give you an example. We've got two athletes who, um, one who comfortably sits, um, say, within 5% of a race weight, let's just say, and another that, that sits within 10% of a race weight but really struggles but to get their, to get their um, body weight down to where they have to race. Let's just say they're rowers. Let's just say. And um, the first person I talked about um, might be able to undertake slight modifications to their dietary intake, which means that they kind of drift towards their race weight, they achieve the race weight, they perform. I don't know whether they perform well, let's not even worry about that. Um, but then afterwards, they just kind of go back to their regular eating and they're all fine and good, right? Take person two who, who kind of who struggles and they have to actually enact really quite dangerous or really quite extreme disordered behaviours in order to get their weight down to where they have to race. And then um, their body like screams at them and they end up either binge eating or overeating or getting themselves into a massive pickle afterwards um, because they kind of usual weight, I, I won't say set point because I think that's a bit contentious, but you know, their usual weight, it's too far away from their race weight. And so do I think that part of it has to do with selection? Yes, I do. I think part of it has to do with what we are encouraging athletes, how we are encouraging athletes and teams to manage risk. Can we cycle in and out of something um, and manage risk? I, I believe we can. Do I think we can do that in a risk-free way? I don't. Do I think that um, some people are at very high risk or, or significantly more at risk? Absolutely. And so it's those athletes I really worry about. And it's not necessarily those athletes that write books and get endorsements. It's the first one I talked about. They're the ones who are like, oh, no, I always managed my weight. And, oh, I found it so easy. And blah, 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 write my book, get this endorsement, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, <laughs> some people really struggle and it just destroys their career. So, yes. Is the same true for those who want to go up a weight class? So if we're talking yes. about weight gain, do you think the same can be said? Like for some, it's much easier for them to do that. And for others, it is harder for them to gain weight. And therefore, absolutely become a preoccupation as well. Yep, absolutely. Yep, definitely. Look, it probably comes with it some slightly different complications or some different complexities. So it's not like the same, but the opposite. I don't observe that to be true. Um, but is it similar in lots of ways yeah absolutely yep okay let's get to these listener questions because i think i think we may have answered some of them but i think um yeah i just want to ask them away and then see your kind of approach as a non-diet dietitian so um a lot of people were asking about protein that became up a lot and you know i think the question really is is like 
Should we be worried about how much protein we're getting, especially if we're training quite intensely, um, even if you're not an elite athlete, even if you're just an everyday athlete, you know, perhaps you're training to do your first marathon, those sorts of things, you know, where, you know, the training schedule might be a bit more intense than usual. Should protein be something we're worried about? And how do we ensure we're getting enough without tracking? Um, and yeah, I think, I think, yeah, and should and are protein supplements needed? Because I think that's always goes hand in hand with the, the protein thing. Yeah. So again, the double question, Tally. Oh, I'm full of them. I'm full of them. I apologise. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. I just need to hold them in my brain. I'll, um, I'll keep queuing them back in. Don't worry. Sounds good. That sounds good. Excellent. Um, all right. So the first question is, you know, it's been really interesting. I've been a sports dietitian for almost twenty years now, and. Um, I have noticed a real shift in the way people are talking about protein. When I first started being a sports dietitian, people weren't talking about protein, not because it wasn't important, but because it wasn't a thing. Whereas I think probably maybe 10 or 12 years ago, it started to be like this thing um, that, you know, I mean, I guess in the early, in my earlier career, it was um, bodybuilders, powerlifters, power sport, mostly men. They would be very focused on protein, but everyone else was a bit like, it was more like carb central really and then carbs went very out of vogue as you know um and um fat became friendly and protein became this thing like this like thing that everybody was talking about and the first thing that i would suggest to people is that the protein is very overblown in terms of its of its singular importance when when used in context, um, for a starter, I prefer to talk about food rather than protein because protein is, yes, it's, it's um, nutritional molecules. I mean, it's really, if we're talking about protein, we're really talking about nutrition science. And if we want to talk nutrition science, that's fine. If that's the language that you want to speak, then, then good luck to you. It's not my language. I speak in food. So if I'm talking about foods that I might talk about um, meats and fish and eggs and nuts and seeds and um, tofu and you know the, the, these kind of foods and they'd be talking about the way that these foods which are not 100% protein um, you know they, they're mixed foods they're mixed nutrient foods um, can be integrated into our lives with the primary aim of energy sufficiency the one thing about protein that can be helpful is that it is a really good biomarker or really good marker for energy sufficiency. So if we aren't eating enough protein, we are usually, not always, but usually eating enough overall. So um, that's one thing that um, I, it's, that's not a universal rule, by the way, anybody who wants to, um, you know, call me out on that, but the energy and protein do tend to go well in dietetics they tend to go together so we we mark somebody's protein needs by their energy needs and we we kind of calculate it that way um but yeah i would say our first priority i, I don't i don't doesn't it does matter which sport you're participating in like that matters if we're doing if we're doing like a marathon versus powerlifting i mean yeah, that's really different. And I'm going to be talking very different about different foods with you for sure. No doubt about it. But with both 
of those participants, I'm first of all going to be concentrating on energy sufficiency. And I'm really going to be looking at relationship with food because the thing is, if you're stressing out over ice cream, then I don't care how much greens you eat. I don't care how much grams of protein you eat. You're just stressing out over going out with your friends. Then that's what we're going to be talking about. That's the conversation that we're going to be having. So, um, yeah, that, but that's me. <laughs> that's me. I'm less interested in, in grams and calories and this and the other. I mean, I can do the calculations in my head, but I think we've gone way too far. It's really unhelpful. And I see the protein thing um, very much influenced by the way that bodybuilding became mainstream on social media. And I say that <laughs> as someone who, you know, five, six, seven years ago, probably about seven years ago now, really got heavily into that because that was what fitness was and that was a large part of what the fitness industry was we had big, big expos for it and everyone and their friend sells a protein supplement everyone and their friends selling protein bars sponsored by a protein brand it's a huge component of the fitness industry and a, it is a prime easy relatively easy product to seem to market and therefore I think that's where this need of importance and this obsession with protein has come from mm -hmm. partly due to the, the industry side of the fitness industry because mm -hmm. it's about being the marketing has been really damn good like we've all thought um we have to have much protein and i think part of my healing my relationship with food has been uh challenging the rule around protein and, you know, I always had to have a protein source at each meal as an example. That was a big thing for me. And realizing that I can have a, a meal that doesn't necessarily have a protein, a portion of protein by, you know, fitness standards has been very liberating for me. Very liberating. And nothing really happened. I was just, do you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. it was fine. And I think, I, I think that's where this, this protein... Um, question comes from because we've been you know the marketing's been good so we i think and it's really interesting how you say that like i i mean do you think the research clearly hasn't radically changed in the last 20 years but it's interesting how the marketing of products mm -hmm. like, sounds kind of like the keto phase and everything mm -hmm, coming mm -hmm. in. it's really influenced sports nutrition as well which is fascinating Mm -hmm. I mean, I was listening to a podcast with um, my boyfriend uh, last week, and he loves rugby. He's a big rugby guy, like loves loves rugby. And we were listening to a podcast with this guy who is actually a fascinating story. Coached the Fijian team to Fijian sevens to Olympic gold. Oh, yeah, one of I his that. things, well, yeah. So one of his things was like he was saying like talking about the nutrition side of it stuff and just being like, yeah, we just had to cut out their sugar. We just had to get rid of their sugar. Um, this was uh, four years ago. And I think that's really interesting because as a, um, and you know, they attribute part of that to peaking at the Olympics and everything like that. So I won't ask you to unpack that, but I think it's really interesting how trends around how we, we view food and what's, what's cool and what's not cool at a certain period in time influences these athletes as well like that is what diet culture does it keeps deciding you know how everyone hated fat and then it was like we love carbs and all this kind of stuff it's so interesting how it has just as much influence on the sports nutrition side as it does to the everyday athlete i think um 
And I found that really interesting. Another thing I heard on that podcast was they were talking about the Olympic Village in Rio and how McDonald's in the Olympic Village had to limit their, um, they would only allow to give 20 products per customer. And this was to the, because as you said, clearly the athletes had been under such pressure Mm -hmm. and had been under such um, strict like eating regime that their way of celebrating or their way of being like, my thing is over now, I can relax was to go and buy copious amounts of McDonald's, which I think is mm-hmm. fascinating. I think, that, I think that speaks volumes of, of sports dietetics, of sports nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. It, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, when the body needs more energy, it's going to get it wherever it can. Mm. And, and we can say this is bad and this is good, all, all we like, you know, we can try and get our mind to take over and, you know, white knuckle it through with what we think we should and shouldn't be doing. But at the end of the day, our body's going to get what it needs. And sometimes that results in binge eating. Um, and which is not a behavior that I believe should be shamed or shameful. It's a response to feeling like we need we, we need more, you know, and sometimes that is more love or sometimes that is more acceptance and sometimes it's more food. I need more food. So, um, oh yeah, and pass on to, pass on to your boyfriend if he's interested, that is, um, that, that, um, that I don't think the Fijian um, coach is correct. I actually think um, sugar had got nothing to do with it. <laughs> and that, um, I don't know whether you and your boyfriend have been to Fiji, but I no. tell you what, the male Fijians are the perfect, physically perfect for rugby. Mm. It's genetically destined that they were going to win the rugby sevens at the World Cup. So, or the Olympics or wherever it was that they won it. Um, yeah, so it's not about sugar. It's about genetics. <laughs> Those men are massive and I would just be scared like if I was on a rugby well I'm not I'm not a rugby pitch but you know I would just be running the other way no wonder they won yeah so I think I I think a big the, the main conversation was kind of like these people are special athletes and super gifted super gifted mm-hmm. and I think that the coach is kind of saying that we just had to tweak a few things I was just very fascinated by this demonization of sugar um mm-hmm. and how that linked to what how sugar had been demonized at the same time you know it wasn't just he didn't think that in a vacuum that's what I found really interesting yes Um, yes but yeah it was it was that was a very interesting podcast um so another thing I suppose and like I am getting into the kind of the specifics of this so um one thing people wanted to know is about pre and post workout meals this was another thing that was very important to me you know, six years ago was making sure I had something before I, before I was about to exercise and ate something after I was about to exercise because otherwise I wouldn't, I would eat before to make sure I had energy to do what I was doing, eat afterwards to make sure that my body would optimize its recovery and I would get loads of muscle and, you know, feel great as well as helping me to generally recover and feel less sore and things the next day. So I just wondered your take on pre and post workout meals are they significantly important or can we like if we intuitively like thinking about our intuitive eating framework if we intuitively are like I'm not really hungry before I exercise so some people like to exercise first thing in the morning and have breakfast afterwards as an example um Mm -hmm. should I be eating before um and if I'm not hungry so 
take my boyfriend as an example again when he exercises he is never hungry afterwards and it always he does like long bike rides and he loves doing rugby training and all sorts and I'm always like aren't you hungry you must be so hungry and it takes him a while for it to kick in for him yes you know it's like a delayed thing yes Um, so I just wondered, but like, you know, I think the fitness world has said, oh, you need to eat within an hour of training. Otherwise you're going to, you know, it's all mm. going to be go to waste kind of thing. And your body's not going to mm. take on what you've been doing. So I just wondered what your thoughts are on that pre and post nutrition. Well, it depends on if somebody's an elite athlete or not. If I was working with an elite cyclist, let's just say, then we would be working pretty specifically around training timing and we'd be, you know, we'd we'd be getting pretty specific about the kinds of things that the body could handle and then what the what would need to be carried on a ride, for example, and then kind of timing afterwards. But that's to be honest, I, I find it really fascinating to, and this is by no means a criticism, but people who go out riding on the weekends and they've got their belts on and they've got their workout stuff. And I think to myself, you're going on a ride, like, don't worry about it. Just have enough fluid with you and maybe your F-plus card to get a smoothie or something like your your visa card or whatever. Um, But, you know, eating beforehand, it's not so much that it's optional. It's more that if you feel like a handful of nuts, and you're exercising for say an hour or so, that will be fine. Like that'll be absolutely fine. It really does matter what you've eaten else in the day and the previous day too, if it's first thing. And what if you've eaten sufficiently the previous day and you just want to grow half a banana before your you know, workout in the morning or not, not even eat at all, that's fine. You're actually not, you're not harming your body. You're not benefiting it either. It's, it's a bit like, well, what works for you type thing. Um, and if you're exercising, say, later, just say you go from um, work to the gym, let's just say, that um, I, I usually do recommend a snack in there, not because it's going to um, like do anything exos- uh, to your body-wise, but, you know, it, if you haven't eaten since 12, 1 or 2 o'clock and you're exercising, then I think mm, the body probably needs something there. Or maybe you've had a really good, decent afternoon snack and that will be enough, like, and that for some people could be enough. Um, for elite athletes, timing afterwards does matter. Um, but some pretty solid research in that area. But for our everyday kind of exercises, um, there is no no timing rules. And what what one thing about exercise it is really, I find it fascinating actually, is it has a down-regulating effect. So exactly what your boyfriend experiences is what a lot of people experience, particularly at high intensities of exercise. Um, and so if we are kind of doing that body-led eating, we can think, oh, well, I don't need to, I don't need to eat um, until you know, I actually get hungry. But what can, actually, what can happen, or a lot of people experience this, is they go from not hungry to like super hungry really, mm. really quickly. Yep. And um, not that that's a problem as such. Um, but that we kind of need to be prepared for that. And sometimes eating when we're on our way hungry or before we get too hungry, even if, if that's, you know, um, starting to prepare yourself a toasted sandwich or, or grabbing yourself a baguette or, uh, you know, having a, starting on a banana smoothie or some, something, for example, like that, um, you know, before you start to get really, really, really hungry can just start that recovery process going on. Again, it's not something that's critical or something that's around body composition, but it's more like, what does my body need right now in order to, to, to get what I want to get done? Yeah. And I think um, that's perfect because it kind of covered the other question we had from a listener about that. Um, Cause I think, um, so in the context of intuitive eating and we talk about 
that gentle nutrition and a lot of when we talk about um, intuitive eating, we get very focused on the hunger and fullness and responding to those cues. And what I think as part of that gentle nutrition part is how we may need to just slightly anticipate stuff. So like, say, um, you know, we don't get supremely hungry. So I train people, personal train people in the evenings often. And say they're not supremely hungry at 5 p.m., but um, they know that halfway through their um, halfway through their session, the energy is going to take a dip, and they're suddenly like, "Whoa, I'm really hungry." This happens, I'll, like you know, I, this happens. Um, that in that case, I would say, you know, if you're not actually super hungry, but is there just like a little thing you can grab just before, just so we can get through it, and you can really enjoy yourself and have the energy to get through it, rather than going, "Oh, I've, I've I'm, I don't know why I suddenly just can't do anything." Um, is that part of that, that gentle nutrition part is sometimes anticipating periods where you may not be, eat, be able to eat for a long time before you're able to go and do your exercise, for example. Um, is that how we can apply that? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, um, it is about anticipating based on past experience and trying not to get ourselves into situations where it's like good, bad, right, wrong, should, shouldn't, you know, and trying yeah, not to get ourselves into these kind of repetitive cycles of, feeling like we've got to get it right all the time and if we're not getting it right then we're getting it wrong the truth is that you know life around food can be a bit, bit of a constant experiment um, and that you know staying flexible wherever possible is, is definitely doable alongside having fitness goals or alongside having performance goals it's absolutely doable um, but the, what happens is we, we tend to get all caught up in rules and that there's a right way to go about that, um, thanks to diet culture and also fitness culture as well, which says that there is one right way to be a particular athlete or one right way to be, you know, participate in a particular sport or activity. And I think when we go down that path, it really undermines our capacity just to, to do the best we can whatever that means um and you know even when we're not performing at um you know in high performance sport for example we're we're just enjoying our movement that um you know staying flexible wherever possible and just seeing food and life as just a bit of a bit of a um a long-term experiment really more than anything else i know that sounds a little bit haphazard and a little bit vague but i think you know we could do with a little bit more kindness. We could do with a little bit more compassion. We could do with a little bit more letting ourselves just be, you know. Um, we're so focused, so over-focused on micromanaging our bodies, micromanaging our food that we really miss out a lot on life. I absolutely agree. And I think the same can be said for the way we approach training, which is what we talk about with Train Happy, is that, like, you don't need to micromanage everything. Allow room for flexibility, for fun, for enjoyment. Um, and within that it's not you you're not flexible fun and enjoying stuff or you're training for goals and similarly with the food right you can have the flexible fun and enjoyment and be working towards a goal and that's okay i think that's really important fiona we're going to wrap this up um because i i just checked the time and we've been chatting for a long time <laughs> but there's so much to talk about on this topic so i like to finish every episode with asking people their train happy moment so what has been a recent moment for you um when you've been moving your body that's i don't know you've noticed um a new thing about yourself it's a certain moment where you felt really good and connected to your body what has been your train happy moment 
You know, at the moment, um, you know, as we're recording this, it is um, we're heading towards the middle of spring here in Melbourne, and the flowers. Um, and the plants and the trees and everything is looking really, really beautiful. We've had a really lovely run of nice warm weather, which, you know, inevitably for Melbourne won't last, but that's okay. Uh, so I think um, moving my body and just walking in nature, specifically in nature, has been so therapeutic and so calming and has been a real balm for me, you know, over the past um, six months or so since, you know, 2020 delivered this shit pile into our laps pretty much um so so i'd say my my train happy moment is being outside in nature just really um moving in a way and at a pace that feels connected for me not 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 straining not forcing but just kind of moving and enjoying so that's mine i love that thank you so much fiona where can people find your work find more about you as the mindful dietitian online well because i'm so creative i'm the mindful dietitian across all platforms so on instagram i am the mindful dietitian just reminding everybody that dietitian is spelt d-i-e-t-i-t-i-a-n not with a c um and then i'm um, same website um mindfuldietitian.com.au so where you can find me you do have a podcast as well which i recommend everyone checking out so you can go and listen to fiona's and what's it called tally the mindful dietitian podcast (laughs) (laughs) see i'm so creative (laughs) well you're consistent and that's the main thing you're consistent um it's been an absolute pleasure and i really hope this episode has answered some questions for people and given them just a little bit more insight into how sports nutrition and a non-diet approach can work together it's been a pleasure thank you so much fiona and um hopefully one day we'll get to see each other but i mean not this year but maybe (laughs) yeah maybe another year um tally thank you so much for inviting me it's been such a pleasure to get to know you especially over the past 12 months or so in our instagram uh i was gonna say instagram relationship and then i was a bit like maybe but i'll just say it anyway um yeah thank you so much for all the beautiful and brilliant work you bring to the world it really does make a difference so thank you thank you i think that's the beauty of instagram i think it obviously has its downside but the connection that i think um people can find through this work is really special and i have to say i've learned so much from other professionals i found so it's been amazing so you're one of them fiona so thank you thanks tally all right um and if you did enjoy this episode make sure to check out um fiona myself use the hashtag train happy podcast at train happy podcast online tag us let us know what you took away from the episode and we'll see you next time thank you so much goodbye everyone Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.